This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Despite what my credentials may indicate, I'm not going to be actually giving a talk on philosophy this evening. So if, that was, if the terror started to grip your hearts as that was being said, don't worry. We're gonna be talking about the presence of God. And specifically, I wanna talk about how we can become more aware of the presence of God at every moment. And I wanna set, set the scene a little bit here. What am I talking about? Why am I talking about awareness of the presence of God? Well, you know, this, this idea of seeking to enter into the presence of God and to remember the presence of God as a practice of prayer has its source in Luke's, St. Luke's Gospel. Remember the story, the parable about uh, the woman and the unjust judge who had to pester the unjust judge until he finally gave her a just settlement and, and decision? Well, before um, the Lord, our Lord goes into that parable, he introduces the parable with the following statement, that Jesus told them a parable about the necessity for them to pray always without becoming weary. Now listen to that statement, to pray always without becoming weary. That's a tall order, but what makes it even bigger is the fact that the sacred author tells us that Jesus was saying this because it is necessary for us to pray always without becoming weary. Unless you think that this is an artifact of the English translation, I can assure you that the Greek actually says, uses a word for necessity in the text itself. And so this is strong language and a big task. And what's more, this is not only uh, an exhortation found in the gospel, but we also find it in St. Paul. In St. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he tells his followers this. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In all circumstances, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Pray without ceasing. That sounds impossible. And yet St. Paul is exhorting his followers to do exactly that. The language, again in the Greek, is in the imperative mood. Do this. Pray always. And so when we take these passages together, we have a strong incentive to take the exhortations seriously and not just as an ideal that can never be achieved. But how is it possible to pray always? Now, historically, these two passages have motivated a lot of reflection. And we see especially the early Christian ascetics trying to live a life of constant prayer. And so this is one of the reasons that drove the hermits and monks out into the desert so that they could be isolated and be able to have the time and the space to dedicate the entirety of their lives to prayer. And this reflection on this passage is also um, the source of many beautiful traditions. For instance, in the Eastern Church, right, this has given rise to, the, to the, uh, the, what they call the Jesus Prayer, and also to a collection about reflection on praying always called the Philokalia. St. John, Cash John Cashin in his conferences 
talks about, talks to one of the, the Abbas of the desert um, about how to do this. And he says, here, I'm going to give you a little phrase and you'll use this to pray at all times. And he says, oh God, come to my assistance. Oh Lord, make haste to help me. And that this is supposed to be a repetition that the monk in the desert is to pray all day. And there's also good reason to believe that the Hail Mary has its source in this. Because if you remember, the Hail Mary, the first parts of it, are words that come directly from Scripture itself. It's called the angelic salutation in St. Thomas's commentary on it, because it comes from Gabriel's salutation to Our Lady. And so there are a lot of beautiful traditions that arose in trying to respond to this question, how am I to pray always? Now, having said that, I'm not going to go down those routes. I'm going to go a different route. Um, and the answer that I'm going to be focusing on this evening is different than the other ones because the other ones all require a sort of active saying of something as, as constantly as possible. But St. Augustine gives a slightly different interpretation on this that seems a little bit more possible to me. In his commentary on Psalm 38, especially specifically on verse 9 of Psalm 38, um, he has some interesting things to say about prayer. And that verse of the psalm says the following, Lord, all my longing is known to thee. My sighing is not hidden from thee. And so St. Augustine then says about this, and, and who observed and noticed the, call, the, the cause of the psalmist's groaning, of his sighing? All my desire is before you, says the psalmist. For it is not before men who cannot see the heart, but it is before you, God, that all my desire is open. Let your desire be before God, and the Father who sees in secret shall reward you. For it is your heart's desire that is your prayer. And if your desire continues uninterrupted, your prayer continues also. For not without meaning did the Apostle Paul say, pray without ceasing. So this is St. Augustine's answer to that question. How am I to pray always without ceasing? And it's to desire God at every moment. And that if we can desire God at every moment, that then becomes our constant prayer, our prayer without, ce without ceasing. And God, who sees the desires of our hearts, will know that our longing for him is also an offering. So if we take this interpretation seriously, then learning to pray always is learning to desire God at every moment. Now, this desire for God need not be a conscious thing at every moment. After all, we do get distracted. But there are other things of which we can be aware of even while we're not conscious of them. So we can know that we're hungry even while we're focusing on something else, for instance. And so the key is to develop a desire that's always there, like background music to our lives such that whatever else it is that we are doing is interrupting our pursuit of fulfilling that desire for God. And that we must stoke it, we must water it, we must allow it to grow, to grow towards God every day at every moment and to increase in desire over time.
And like any of our desires, the closer that we come to something for which we long, the more our desire grows for it. You know, there's an old saying, of course, that says that the absence makes the heart grow fonder. And there is some truth to this. But absence only allows our desire to grow when there is some sort of presence of the thing that we desire there, whether it be a picture, a letter, a familiar item, a smell, something. And again, going back to that hunger metaphor, you can realize that you're hungry, but as soon as you smell something delicious coming from a window or a kitchen, like bread or a cake in the oven, or whatever it is that you might be hungry for, all of a sudden that background desire comes straight to the fore and maybe your mouth begins to water and all that sort of stuff. So, of course, the not having of what we want permits our desire to grow as long as we are aware that it's achievable, that it's somewhere near us, that it is present and ready for us just to reach out and to touch it. And so the more we draw closer to God, the more we can become aware of his presence and of our need for him. And thus, the more our desire will grow for him. We hear in the letter of St. James in chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then I would say, of course, that as he, you draw near to him and he draws near to you, your desire for him grows all the more. And so learning to draw closer to God and to desiring him more will help us to then build within our lives this habit of desiring him always and thus fulfilling the necessity of praying always in the presence of God. Now, traditionally, there is one book that has been that introduced this as a topic in the West called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, who was a Carmelite brother of the 17th century. You can find it fairly easily online. However, I have found a little book by a 20th century Irish Dominican to be personally more helpful. It's, it's a book that's simply called The Presence of God. And it's by a Dominican whose name is Father Anselm Moynihan who was actually the novice master for a while for the Irish province. And for some reason, they tell me that his, name, his nickname was Moses. <laughs> I asked why. Was it because they're you know, leading the, the novices to the promised land of the order? I don't know. But uh, nobody gave me a straight answer. But anyway, he can at least lead us in the ways of being aware of the presence of God. And in this book, Father Anselm uses the, the kind of basic notions that we find in Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection and then mixes in his Thomistic background to teach us about the different ways that God is present to us um, in a way that follows the teachings of St. Thomas on this. And so following St. Thomas, uh, Father Moynihan says that there are essentially four ways in which God is present to us that he is present to us by his presence, by his power, by his essence, and by his indwelling. So the rest of my lecture this evening will be looking at what he understands these four ways that God is present to us to be. And so to begin with, we'll look at what it means to say that God is present to us by his presence, which is a bit weird to keep saying and repetitive, um, but 
it has a restricted meaning in scholastic thought, and that's where this comes from. This is actually a common theme among many scholastic thinkers to talk about God's pre the four ways of being present to us. And so in this type of presence, Father Anselm enco uh, encourages us to think about it in a way that's similar to how, say, a mother might be present to her child on the, while the child is playing on the playground. The mother sits on the side and watches the child from a distance, and the child is allowed free reign within the park to run from place to place, to climb here, to go swinging, to go sliding. Mom is not directly involved. She gives her child free reign, and yet the entire time, her eye is upon the child, watching. And moreover, the child is aware of this. Sometimes the kid may goof off a little bit so that mom pays a little bit more attention. Maybe he will think twice about pushing that other child off the jungle gym because he knows that mom is watching. Either way, right, the child is aware that mom is there and that she's watching and that this awareness of her presence changes and affects the way that he acts. So this is, in some ways, the way that God is present to us in this first way of, his, of God's presence, that it's a watchful presence, that God sees us, but he sees us not just from a distance. He sees, a, he sees us up close, and that he sees, in fact, not only every move, but every beat of our heart, every thought that comes across our mind. He knows us even better than we know ourselves which if God is distant from us may seem frightening, but the more we make this awareness of God's loving presence towards us a part of our lives, the more it becomes a sense of comfort and security. Just like the child on the playground is more secure because the parent is there, so we as children of God can be more secure as we go throughout life, recognizing that God is watching over us. And God watches over us not because he's trying to catch us in evil. He watches over us for the same reason that a mother watches over her child, out of joy and a desire to make sure that the child is safe. And so building this presence is just to become aware that God sees everything about us, all that we are doing, all that we are involved in, all that we desire. And one of the beautiful things about this is it means that we are never truly alone in life. There's always somebody with us, somebody who understands us, who sees exactly who we are, the good and the bad, and yet still loves us, loves us even more than we can possibly imagine. And in the darkest moments of our lives, we can be assured that there is someone there, even if we cannot feel him. Father Moynihan writes, I am never alone then. I cannot be alone. No human eye may be upon me. No human heart may be concerned with me, but the eyes and the heart of God are always there. And so then this realization of God's never failing presence in our lives calls from us a response. First, it calls us to frequently bring to mind during the day that God is there, 
that in the brief moments when we're not distracted by work or worry, we can see that he's there. And then we can try to remember that what we are doing, we must do in order to please him. But we can also, of course, talk to him, to send up little prayers about our worries and our troubles that are bothering us at that moment and ask him for guidance, or at least for strength to endure the trials of the day. And it also means that when we are aware that he's present to us by his, by his uh, watchful presence, it means that we can then also learn to do all things so that they please him. Not because they please other people, not because they even please ourselves, but simply because they please him. Now, of course, if we fail in purifying our intentions and not doing them to please God, which, frankly, all of us probably do, we must also call to mind, right, again, that the Lord doesn't watch over us to punish us, but to heal us. So when we fail, God is still there. He has not abandoned us, and he will be there with us to draw us back to himself. And so in this type of reflection, right, when we become aware of God's all-encompassing presence, it can help us to grow in purity of heart and in the intentions that drive each and every one of our actions. So that's the prayer, that's the way that God is present to us by his watchful presence. The second way I want to look at is how God is present to us by his power. Now, what does this mean? Well, Father Moynihan has the following to say in explanation. He says that nothing happens in creation that is not subject to his all-pervading governance. So intimately and immediately do his wisdom and his power penetrate into and dominate every event that I can think of all as coming directly from his hand and ignore the human or other instrument which, do, which he does in part use. Now, of course, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but what we mean by, uh, it's an exaggeration insofar as we ignore the human instruments, but what we mean by this, by God's presence to us by his power, is that at every moment, in every instance of the world, God is guiding things by his providence, by his might. As we read in the Book of Wisdom, indeed, wisdom, or God, reaches from end to end mightily, and governs all things well. So God not only knows all that goes on in the world, but everything is under his control and guided by his divine providence. Nothing happens in the world that God does not at least permit. God has a definite purpose and a plan for the world, and he is working it out even as we speak. And so God is there at work and even in our very actions and in the depths of our soul. His, his action is not general. It's not like he's planning these things from some high place in the sky, directing it from a distance like a conductor. Rather, he is down into the nitty-gritty details uh, that no human mind or could ever capture, no computer, no matter how powerful, could ever map that he is working out every single detail in its infinite value for his infinite good and for the good of all. 
So if God is in control of everything and guides all creation to, his, to its end, where, where does our prayer come into play? So we say that God, of course, is guiding all things and we want to pray to him. But what's the point of praying when God is already working things out? You know, we have a tendency to treat prayer as an occasion on which we are informing God about what is happening in our lives and what we need from him. But when we think about it, of course, God doesn't need us to inform him about these things. It is important to note that prayer is not the way that we let God know what we want, nor how we can persuade him. God already knows what we need. And so Father Moynihan puts it well when he says that when we pray for a favor and get it, what happens is not that God has changed his mind, but that we, moved by God, have disposed ourselves to, to receive something he has already intended to give. So we call this in the Catholic tradition, cooperating with grace. A beautiful phrase from the prophet Isaiah says, um, you meet out peace to me, O God, for it is you who have accomplished all that we have done. All the good that we do is, is, happens when we cooperate with God's action. The only thing attributable to us on our own are our evil actions. So we want to make sure that we always work with God. So then what does prayer do? Prayer teaches us to build up our desire to cooperate with him, making it more intense. And this intensifying of our desire teaches us to rely more and more upon God and less and less upon ourselves. As St. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. And so when we pray, we participate in God's plan and God gives us a share in his life in return. And when we pray, we learn to live and under his guidance, to cooperate with his plans more and more and trust that he is the one who is accomplishing all the good that we do. And so realizing that God's power is guiding all things and governing the world down to its minutest detail teaches us to rely on him completely. And this gives all an all, all new meaning to what the Lord says in John's gospel, that without me, you can do nothing. Evil is nothing. God is everything. And so to do anything, we must do it with and in God. So that's how God can be present to us by his power through his ever guiding and present providence. The third way that God is present to us is by his essence. Now, what, do, what we mean by this is that God is not distant from us when he's present to us. You know, in the first two ways, it's almost as if he's distant from us. In the first way, it's he's gazing upon us. In the second way, it's he's got his hands on everything, guiding the world. But when we understand that God is present to us by his essence, we see that he is near us, so near to us that he is causing us 
not only to live, but to exist. And in this way, God is the very foundation of our lives. All of us, whether we believe in God or not, depend completely on God, not only to do things, but even to be who we are. We don't worry most of the time, unless we have medical issues, about the beating of our heart, right? About the breathing from our lungs. These things just happen. When you think about them, then you might start worrying about it, so don't think about it too much. But, you know, God, right, is, of course, causing you to exist. He holds you in existence. And so when God is present to us by his essence, we see that he is near us and the foundation of our lives, and that all of us depend on God uh, completely. And so we hear in the Acts of the Apostles that God is not far from any one of us, It is in him that we live and move and have our being. So Father Moynihan writes that whenever anything exists, there must God himself be, giving it its existence. The very fact that a thing is means that God himself is there at the roots of its being. All things are rooted in God. You may have heard of St. Thomas's famous five ways. This fact is what is at the root and source of the first way. It's what proves the first, through the uh, the first way, that that God must exist because all things have to have a cause that needs no other cause. But what this means downstream for us is that each and every one of us is held in existence by God at every moment of our lives. I remember as a kid, uh, people would try to explain this by saying that if God forgot about you for one moment, you would pop out of existence. It's a rather terrifying thought for a child, but nevertheless effective in expressing the extreme dependence that we have on God, right? It's a way of saying that he is thinking about us, yes, but he's also making us to exist. God is so close to us that we can say that he is closer to us than we are to our very selves. He knew us even before he knit us together in our mother's womb. And he holds us in existence from one moment to the next. And this is not a precarious thing. You know, the fact that our lives, that our existence are in the hands of God means that we don't have to worry about it. Because even if the beating of our hearts may cease, we do not, because God himself holds us in existence, even as our bodies may decay in the grave. And it is he whose voice we will hear on the last day and will raise us from the dead. And so then how can we respond to God as he is present to us in essence? Well, the first thing is that when we think of God holding us in existence at every moment, we shouldn't think that it's like God who has cast a lasso around all of existence and is holding it in together all at once. No, he holds each and every one of us together individually. Individually. He sees you, he knows you, and he calls you by name, and he holds you in existence. God is not spread out through creation like butter on toast. God is not, imi- God is not physical in that way. 
is immaterial. And so he can be present in his entirety at every place in every, uh, in every part of creation. His self is not divided. He is wholly present wherever anything is caused to exist by him. And so God in his whole self sustains each and every one of you as individuals. As Father Moynihan says, the fullness of the divine nature is immediately behind every particle of reality that exists throughout the universe. I like to think when I'm reflecting on this that a distant moon uh, circling a distant planet in a far off galaxy is held in existence by God because he sees in all of these things value that he has created. His essential presence then is not something that we can imagine because we're physical beings, right? We imagine things being in places and being partially here and partially there. But so we can't fully imagine it, but we can trust in it because we trust that we exist from every moment, from one moment to the next. And so then when I turn to him in prayer and realize that he is upholding me and is the reason why I live and move and have my being, then I realize that there is no part of God that is missing from my life. There is no part of God that is missing from your life. He is there. And that in a way, this is comforting. Because God's attention is completely focused on Just as he is present to you undividedly, so is his attention undividedly. You know, sometimes um, atheists will try to belittle uh, Christian thought by saying, why does God care about what you do in your life, you know, when you pray? But of course, this is a misunderstanding of who God is. God is not distracted by anything. He sees it all effortlessly. Effortless, effortlessly. He has no um, hindrance of seeing all things and more. Because not only does he see all that is that he made, he probably even sees all that could, he could have made and yet did not. And so um, other human beings may be divided even, when they, even in their own hearts as they, as they um, converse with us. But God, when he gives us his attention, and he does because we're here, God, when he gives us his attention, gives us all of his attention and nothing less. And so then what this awareness does is to teach us more about our dependence on God. Without him, we are nothing. St. Catherine of Siena, in her writings, likes to say, that when she refers to herself, she says, I am she who is not, and that God is he who is. But this is not scary, because she knows that God's love is what caused her to come into existence, and that she can trust that that love will hold her in existence. And the same with all of us. Because then our trust is founded upon the most stable thing in the universe, the unchanging God. Now, the odd way thing about this, the odd thing about this way in which God is close to us is that it means that we can't always feel his presence. Now, normally when we think that somebody is present to us, 
in a very intimate way, that we will know that they're there, that we will feel their presence. But God is so close to us, so at the core of our being, that he's there even below the foundation of our feelings, that the fact that we have feelings is rooted in the fact that God is causing us to exist. And so we do not need to feel God's presence to know that he is there. And in fact, often as we grow in the spiritual life, God will take away our sensible feeling of his presence so that we can have a pure awareness of his presence, first by knowledge, and then later on as we grow in the faith, in, in, in spirituality, we will become aware of his presence simply by faith itself. And so sometimes our feelings can even distract us from the more profound ways in which God is present to us. And his presence is in some ways a dark presence, that we know he's there even if we can't feel him. In the first book of Kings, we hear of Elijah going to meet God, and Elijah is trying to listen for God's coming. And we hear that first a strong and heavy wind was rending the mountains and crushing the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a tiny whispering sound. And it was this tiny whispering sound that revealed God, the presence of God to Elijah and called him forth from the cave to meet God. And likewise, when God comes to us, he's not going to come in magnificent appearances. And in fact, if you do start seeing God, talk to your priest, because you never quite know who, whether you're actually seeing God or something else might be going on. So beware. God speaks to us, right, in ways that are even below our awareness. And sometimes we only see that he's there when we look back on our lives. And so this backward glance is handy. As they say, right, you know, at a backward glance is with 20-20 vision. And, that, and that's normally to say, like, you know, when we complain about the mistakes that we made, well, we see better now than we, than we did at the moment. And that's true. And so we should also use that for how we see how God is present to us. So when we look back on our lives, we can see the many ways that God has worked without our knowing us. When we look back on our teenage years and we realize, I did a lot of dumb things, and yet I didn't die. So God was clearly there, right? Or that when we avoid mortal sin and we knew we could have fallen into it, that God caused us to turn away either early on or even at the last moment. And, that so, if, and then so that we can see, when we look back on our lives, we can see the ways in which God has shaped our lives and guided us even without us being aware. And then in that moment, we become aware of his presence. That even though I don't know that he's guiding me right now, at least in feeling, I know that he is there in faith because I know that I am here and that I cannot be here but for the presence of God. Now, lastly, I want to turn to the fourth way in which God is present to us. And this is the most mysterious of the four ways, but also the most intimate. And we call this how God is present to us by his indwelling. 
And um, this is the mo- by far the most personal. Now, it seems weird to say that because we were just talking about how God holds us in existence, right? How can we be more, how can we have a more personal and intimate presence with God when he himself is holding us in existence? Because in, the reason is that when God dwells in us, we then dwell in him. In his, in God, when God is present to us by essence, he holds us in existence. When God is present to us by indwelling, we then begin to live in his presence. In the Gospel of St. John, Jesus promises that he and the Father will come to dwell in us. And by this statement, the church has understood that Jesus is promising that all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will come to make their homes in our souls. So by God's presence, power, and essence, God sustains us, he guides us, but in his indwelling, God makes his home with us, giving life to our souls in a new way. And the amazing thing is, is that while the first three ways that God is present to us is available to all creation, the indwelling presence of God is only available to a Christian in a state of grace. So this is the presence that is particular to God's holy ones. What the indwelling of God's presence does is to make us friends with God. You know, this is the one Aristotle quote I'm going to give tonight. But Aristotle said, Aristotle is reported to have said that friends are two bodies that share one soul. That's how close they are. And so if this is true for human friendship, imagine how much more profound the sharing of hearts is between God and man. Because when God comes into our hearts, he doesn't doesn't, um, exclude us from ourselves, but he expands us in himself. He doesn't take up room in our hearts. He makes more room in our hearts so that he can be there, so that he can dwell there, and so that we can dwell with him. Again, this presence doesn't necessarily mean that God is felt within us. In fact, again, we, can't, we often cannot feel his presence. But his presence is unmistakable. It's unmistakable in the fact that even in the most terrible moments of our lives, sometimes our faith is unshakable. And that is a sign that God is there. Now, one way to kind of visualize this presence that I like to reflect on um, is the way that God was present to to Mary when he became incarnate in her womb. So let's consider the mystery of the Annunciation in St. Luke's Gospel to witness how God became man uh, and by dwelling in the womb of Mary. We see the angel greet Mary, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Now these words are, of course, familiar to us who pray the rosary often. And the angel Gabriel, who was entrusted to God to carry out the message of the incarnation, greets Mary as full of grace. And it is her fullness of grace that makes her able to be a vessel of the divine presence. And by full of grace, we mean, the angel Gabriel means that she was so full of grace 
that it overflowed her soul like water poured into a bowl that overflows itself after having been filled and yet continues to be filled by God. Mary was and is so full of grace that she brims over with it. And so this teaches us that when God comes to dwell in us, he dwells in us accordingly as we are filled with grace. This is because everywhere God is, there is holiness. There is no evil allowed in his presence. Where he dwells, there is only light and goodness. And so when we are filled with his grace, God is preparing us to receive him. Not only makes us holy, but lives in us as holiness. And so Mary was prepared ahead of time that she might be overflowing with grace to such a degree that God could become flesh in her very womb. And in this way, in this way she's shown with the pure gold of grace. And Mary, how does Mary respond to this announcement? She responds with a question. How can this be since I have no relations with a man? Now, the word translated as relations in this passage is actually the Greek word for knowing. So to know someone in Hebrew culture was a euphemism, of course, for marital relations. But I highlight this to show that how knowledge is considered to be an intimate thing. Knowledge is an intimate thing. So even though it's a euphemism for the marital act, there's a reason. Because knowledge has within it this power of, of intimacy that then God uses to come to us. That God comes to us through our knowledge as well as through our heart. So Gabriel responds to Mary by saying, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The role of the Holy Spirit's overshadowing here is central to the Annunciation, that Mary conceives not by man, but by the Holy Spirit who comes to her. And in response to this answer, Mary gives her fiat. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Her consent completes the whole episode, and the tradition holds that it was at this moment that Mary conceived. And interestingly enough, if you see a lot of classical images of this scene, the Holy Spirit is coming in and going to Mary's ear, because she heard the word, consented to it, and then knew the word had been conceived within her heart. We can take a lot from this episode to see how come God comes to dwell within us. And, but there's another gospel passage I want to highlight as well about God's indwelling, found in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. There we read how Jesus promises to send us the Holy Spirit, and he says that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the world doesn't have him because it doesn't know him, but we who know God have his presence. So notice, right, it's this knowledge of the Holy Spirit that permits the Holy Spirit to enter into our hearts and to make it his home. And so we hear a few verses later, if a man loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Again, that passage about the indwelling of, of God. So notice, right, again, it is knowledge that leaves us to receive the Holy Spirit. 
So in these two passages, we have the promise of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to come to dwell within us. And it's brought about by knowledge, first by the Holy Spirit, um, and then in knowing the Holy Spirit and knowing the Father and the Son, we then are able to keep his word, and God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts. And this knowing of God is not a knowledge in an abstract sense. Because as St. Thomas tells us, we can't, God doesn't have a form that we can abstract from him. So in St. Thomas, Thomas's way of knowing things, when we see and understand things, we abstract from them a form that comes and enters into our mind. God has no, nothing that we can take from him in that way. Instead, what he does is he takes our heads and plunges us into himself so that we have direct knowledge of him, at least in the beatific vision. Here on earth, we, have, we can only see him as through a mirror darkly. But the promise of God is that he will, you will see him directly, face to face, without any intermediary, without any even concept in our mind. But we will see him with that great of an intimacy. This is the intimacy of the knowledge of God, that it brings about a direct concept a direct contact with the heart of God. This is something to wonder at. And we might ask with Mary, how can this be? Because we know that we are unworthy of God's presence. And that his presence cannot be brought about us by our natural actions and by human means. And so what this means is that God's indwelling happens by God making us holy by his action in our lives. And so he is the one who draws us to himself. As Jesus says, no one can come to, the Father, to me unless the Father draws him. So when God comes to dwell in us, the Holy Spirit visits us and makes us holy and unites us to God through knowing him in the intimate sense. But how can we grow in awareness of this intimate union of God? Well, simply by just reflecting on these passages, how God will come to dwell in us. But really, the best way to do this is whenever we go to Mass and we receive the Eucharist. For every time at Mass when we receive the Eucharist, we have before us the real presence, body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he enters into us. But unlike regular food, we don't consume him. He consumes us. He does not become part of our body. We become part of his body. And so when he comes into us, take that moment after communion, whenever you're there the next time and every time afterwards, say, Lord, thank you for being present to me. Help me to be more aware of this presence and to be grateful. Now, I'm afraid I've gone on a little bit long, so I'm going to have to wrap up our reflection on the ways in which God is present to us. But to sum up, we reflected on four different ways that God is present to us. And in this meditation, we've learned that we are never without God. And so that to become aware, constantly aware of God's presence to us is a way in which we can learn to desire him, to desire him more and more from one moment to the next. And in this desire, then, we find, of 
course, the answer to our prayers. We recognize, every, and every time I give this, I recognize how poorly I keep this. And yet, it then leads us and can lead us to reflect on his presence more and more and to want to desire him more and more. And then in that desiring, in that wanting to be in his presence, in that wanting to be with him at every moment, we then have that constant prayer that it is necessary for us from one moment to the next. And it is through our desire that we will learn to pray always to receive a foretaste of heaven, even here. Amen. So we have time for questions. Going back to the beginning of your talk, how does free will fit into all of this? So, First of all, with the free will question, it gets a little complicated. I would suggest that you look at our um, Aquinas 101 videos on the Thomistic Institute website. We have some good videos on this topic. But free will, God's, the short answer to this is that God's providence and his guidance about everything isn't in conflict with our will. So just like God can be present to us without driving us out of ourselves, so God can guide everything in the world without being in conflict with our willing. So that um, when we will, right, uh, and then it, it is in a way our willing, but nothing that we can do can contradict what God's plan is ultimately. We can fall away from him and choose evil on our own, but all good requires God to cooperate with us. And so there's a mysterious way in which we depend upon God at every moment for our willing, and yet it still is ours. And so God's action doesn't um, push our willing out of the way, but when we cooperate with him, it actually strengthens it. Uh, thank you. My name is James. I am trying to write two thoughts in your presentation. First, we were to pray unceasing, which in my mind appears to be active involvement on my part. And then we look at the four ways that God is present. God can be present but not be thinking about it. So how do I pray unceasingly combine that with the four ways that he is present? Okay, so, so yeah, the, the ways in which you combine the idea, the reflection on God's four ways that he's present to us with this, with this way to pray unceasingly is, is what I was talking about with St. Augustine, that the answer to how we pray unceasingly is to have this desire for God at all moments that becomes kind of like a background noise to our lives. And so the reflection on the, on the different ways that God is present to us is meant to increase and strengthen that desire so that that desire begins to bleed into every part of our lives. And if that's the case, then we cannot help but make everything that we do a prayer. Because if everything that we do is infused with this desire for God be, that is grown because we are reflecting on his presence, uh, presence at every moment, then we can begin to, uh, that can then lead to a prayer for every, at every moment, right? So the, because it's, it's psychologically impossible to be praying physically at every moment. That's not something we're going to do until the resurrection. 
But at least while we are here in Bia, we then are able to, at the very least, be constantly praying through this longing to be with God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so sure. The, the question is, so we have lots of desires in our, in our lives, right? How can we then integrate and, and uh, bring up this, this desire for God? How does that coordinate with our other desires, and how can we use that evangelically? So, um, I mean, ultimately, I think that the answer to that is the foundational notion that God is the only one who can satisfy all the desires of our hearts. And that anything that we desire that doesn't lead to God will ultimately be unsatisfactory. And so when we are reflecting on this, and I think in this case, the first way that God is present to us is helpful, that are the things that we desire pleasing to him? And then if so, right, then the fulfillment of those desires may also be, if they are pleasing to him, the fulfillment of his desires. And the key is to try to make sure that all of our desires match up with his desire for us. Now, of course, we fail, right? You know, this is why we have confession, why we have, why we are, have to grow in it, right? But that's the ultimate goal. And that's where the life of prayer is leading to. And so trying to reflect on these different ways that God is present to us can help to purify those desires so that they all become directed towards one purpose, right? Because, you know, we can do, there, are, there are different things in our lives that we kind of organize, right? We might have a lot of tasks, but we might organize them to fulfill one goal. So let's say, you know, I have to, I have to do five things before I go on vacation, and I can't go on vacation until I do exactly those five things, right? So I desire to finish those things, but for the purpose of having a great vacation and not having to worry about it. Likewise, we can do that with the other desires in our life for God, right? That when we, when we realize we have all these other things, and our question should be, how can I then order these desires under God's grace so that they can lead to him? And if they don't, how can I leave them behind? Now, how we use this evangelically, I think, is, this, is to just point out Right, that the desires of every human heart is, is rooted in God. And the way that we talk about that, you know, the way I usually approach it is starting from just with Aristotle, which is a personal preoccupation, but nevertheless, I think helpful. Because he does talk about in his Nicomachean Ethics that um, there, there is all humans by nature desire happiness. And oddly enough, at the end of the Nicomachean Ethics, we, re we realize that happiness is found in contemplation, right? And so that we order our desires by achieving this contemplation. So it's not much of a, uh, of a greater jump to say, of course, that the only one whom we can contemplate without worry is God. And so if we can tune into that desire and the realization that all other desires are going to fail us, only the, the desire of God can be had without fear of loss once we have achieved the fulfillment of that desire. 
And if we can pull on that, people will come to know and to love him more. This is why, for instance, a lot of people who have, um, whose lives kind of crash because of the, of kind of the, the mess they made of things, will often find in that moment the moment of conversion because then they realize that everything that they've desired in life has led them only to misery. But God will not. And that's the key. Mm -hmm. A point on reflection. If, if knowledge kind of informs uh, faith and also helps foster desire, uh, how should one reflect on the whispers they hear that are so frequently kind of brushed uh, aside or ignored? What kind of whispers do you mean? So uh, if God is not found in an earthquake or a fire or a soft voice, so how so if you know we all, we have a tendency to look for um, God in the big events right you know in the in the earthquakes and in the way the big ways in which he becomes present to us how can we then learn to look for him in the whispers and that's, that's a tough question. I would say, first of all, we need to pray for it. Every day to pray to God and to your guardian angel to help you to become aware when God is kind of nudging you to do something, right? So ask God for help. And the second thing is to laugh at ourselves when we make utter failure, when we utterly fail, right? When like our house of cards begins to collapse and we just realize it's not working. That's when we laugh because God didn't want it. He wants something else for us. And so then we listen to him. If we don't take ourselves too seriously, then we can learn to take God's plan seriously because he who has providence over all things will lead us towards, um, towards where, we need, where he wants us to be. And so, when we, don't, when we are not crushed by our failings, we can then learn to hear his whispers, even in the midst of our successes. At least that's been my experience with this. Uh, but, in many, but I think the most important way is to simply pray for it. And that if you pray earnestly to hear God's whispers, he will show them to you. And it will scare you. <laughs> but he will show them to you. So just ask every day, several times a day. Maybe just one more. I don't know. So powerful thing is extraordinary. He says something that's very intriguing. God is not present with me. So I just my question was as a woman, as a man, a faithful woman, and perhaps a man is equal God is with a woman who's a faithful woman. So how is he present to people who are committing evil? Well, the first thing is that God, that evil is always an absence, and specifically an absence of God, but that any individual who exists still has some goodness. There is no such thing as a purely evil person. And that St. Thomas will say even the souls in hell are not purely evil. And God, God, by allowing them to exist, still has still gives them his mercy. And so people that we come across, even the most wicked person that we might come out there, still has God's presence with them. 
And so the key is to find that and then to pray that God becomes more present to them over time because they are not hopeless and they're not lost.